So where's the office, back at Division? You're in the office, baby. Bro, I slept in an office, and when the new coach came... That yeah. was a bad time, man. There was like six of us who lived in the facility. All of a sudden, they're like, yo, you can't live here anymore. Yeah. So like, you're not working here. You guys can't. And I had already got rid of the van. No, leave. All I remember is they brought us goldfish upstairs. <laughs> yeah! You guys are like Stockholm victims. Like, all of you are crazy. Yeah. This isn't how it's supposed to work. You remember when they, they said crazy. you couldn't... I've been there for four years. Today's a training day, Officer Hoyt. Show you around, give you a taste of the business, you know? I got 38 cases pending trial, 63 in active investigation, another 250 on the log I can't clear. I supervise five offices, that's five different personalities, five sets of problems. You could be number six if you act right. But I ain't holding no hands, you understand? I ain't babysitting. You got today, and today only, to show me who and what you're made of. When times are tough later on and you have a wife and kids and a family depending on you to provide for them, you're not allowed to give in or stop or, or even waste time thinking about slowing down. You just have to work and grind and do everything you can to provide for the ones you love. The most important thing in business is honesty, integrity, hard work, family, never forgetting where we came from. See, you are what you are in this world. That's either one or two things. Either you're somebody, or you're nobody. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Uh. Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need y'all to brawl. Welcome to episode number 18 of the Sideline Hustle Podcast. Don't feel like there's much to say here. This episode is pretty cool. Uh, it puts a great finishing touch on our coaching carousel series. Uh, we talk about transitioning into a new job and all of our experiences getting fired from an old one. Uh, but before we get into all that, I, I wanted to show you guys a conversation I had with Mike Teal that I think offers a pretty honest view into the lives of everyday football coaches and does a great job of summarizing everything that this coaching carousel series has been about. So compare this for me, compare job hunting, finding a job, transitions, everything, and coaching. You're actually a good case of someone who's actually then found a real job and probably at times looked for other corporate jobs, whatever, you've been in that world. Like I never have, the only other job I've had besides coaching is starting a podcast out of the blue that doesn't make any money, which isn't really a real job. So, so I don't know, I can't speak on that. Like how does it compare looking for a corporate job, finding a corporate job? Just like coaching, just use connections and use the networking platform that I was able to take in college and was from there was able to go and into the corporate world and, and really get a job without having to really stress much about it. Like, yeah. I, I think I sent a resume. I, I might have had to make a resume. Yeah, right. You know, it wasn't like yeah. I was out there, you know, sending my resume to 30 different people. So I went in the city had lunch, kind of BS with them, you know, learned a little bit about the job. Yeah. Frankly, had no idea what the job was. Yeah. I just knew that it was going to pay me six figures and I was going to have the ability to make a lot of money down the road. Yeah. So basically, yeah, let's go. Let's move on. Yeah. it. So three or four days later, the branch manager and I had a formal interview and they asked me why I was doing it and everything. I said, doing it because I want to make money. You know, for me, it was I finished playing and at the end of the day, I had I had bills to pay and I wasn't making any money. And, you know, a full-time job at Wagner was paying me 14 grand. You know, it wasn't going to work. So I think it's interesting, the kind of that dichotomy, you saying like, all right, why did you want this job? Because I wanted to make money. You really can't have that mindset 
as a coach. Like you heard Ralph talk about a perfect example. Like I wasn't in it for the money. I was a GA for four years. I made $11,000, didn't crack the $20,000 mark till nine years in my career. Like that's the case for most, most guys don't make money in coaching until five, six, seven, eight years. Like you can't be in, you have to be in it because you love it. Like I think you can take jobs in the real world to make money, to pay the bills. I think if that's your motive in coaching, it's too hard of a profession for you to last. I think you have to truly love what you're doing in order to, to last in it. I think your personal circumstance dictates that a lot too. Mm-hmm. I've heard stories Absolutely. of guys that get married and have kids and all of a sudden, you know, the the $30,000 that you get paid for being a D2 coach isn't paying the bills yeah. and you got to go get a real job. Yeah. And you might have a passion and love the game of football, but there becomes a responsibility for a family at some point. If yeah. you're a younger guy and you can afford the ability to just grind it out, then, then you can do that. But you know, life is life is a game of circumstances and, and the cars that you're dealt and the circumstances that you have to deal with, either good or bad, you got to be able to, to be proactive towards it. And for some guys, it's I've got to get out of coaching. I got to go find a way to support my family. Other guys, it's, you know, I'm kind of grinding it out. I don't have a family and I'm good right now and I'm going to keep doing it until I get yeah. the opportunity because, you know, you, you see all these big time college coaches now, you, you don't do it for money, but you're that guy's saying that and he's making $7 million a year. It's a completely different world than the guy who's a D2 coach who's got a wife and two kids and Mm -hmm. making 40 grand, you know, can barely, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. It's so I think that's a bunch of BS in in a sense. Yeah. You have to have a passion for football because even at the high school level, you don't, you don't get paid to coach. I mean, basically the guys who coach for me, the money that they get pays for their gas and tolls to get to practice. So there has to be a passion for it. Yeah. But at the same time, there's also got to be the ability to afford for your family Mm -hmm. and to do what you love and make a living what you do, which is that's obviously if you can find something you love and you can make a living doing it and be successful and and be comfortable doing it. That's the best thing in the world. But the reality of that is for a lot of guys. You know, you're fighting every day to make sure you have enough money to buy diapers for your kids. I think it's all your philosophy on life. There, there's some guys that want to have families early and want to, you know, do everything that, that they had growing up. And there's other guys that are kind of in the coaching world and that's all they know. You, how many, how many guys who are big time coaches now come from coaching families? There's a lot. I don't, it's not a huge percentage, but, but but there's enough that that's all they know. There's such a high percentage of guys that like, even though they might have the skills to do something else in their head, could never see themselves doing anything else. Because all they've known was they grew up playing football, they played high school football, football is what gave them the opportunity to go to college because they earned a scholarship to get to a school maybe they couldn't get into otherwise. Football gave them everything, and they're, so now that they're done playing, it's like, well, all I've ever known is football. What, what do you do now? And I think there's a lot of guys like that. Yeah, I think for me personally, the biggest thing that really ever changed my life was playing in the NFL and getting an NFL paycheck. Yeah, You know, was I willing to grind as a GA trying to be a college coach for hopefully one day getting that opportunity to, to, to be a division one position coach or right. coordinator, you know, for me, no, because I had the experience of being able to make money and pay bills and, you know, be able to rent an apartment and do all that stuff. And not that I was against the grind cause I did that, but yeah. there comes a point where, you know, this is ridiculous where I'm sleeping on a couch or an air mattress and I'm getting three hours of sleep at night, mm-hmm. you know, like quality of life. And, yeah. and I think there's a lot of people that, kind of get to that point where, you know, you got to try it and you got to see it. And, you, you know, if, if it's for you, you're going to thrive. And there's some guys that say, no mas, and uh, I don't need to do this anymore. I'm going to go find a way to be successful and still be involved in football. For me, it was to kind of get into the high school world again. Not that I'm going to get rich, but, you know, I can a, a, afford a living where I'm yeah. comfortable and, you know, I can enjoy an off season. And again, it's a little different where I am, but 
you don't have the responsibilities of being out, you know, on the road recruiting and yeah. going through spring ball and yeah. doing all that stuff. You know, football in high school for me, it's, you know, you're on the field from, you know, June until whenever the last game of the year is. So right. it's different. I think that's one thing, you know, you were talking about your circumstances and I think it's something that, that we were just kind of just speaking on before we started recording the podcast. I think it's going to help the future of the sideline hustle is the fact that I've never had a real job. I've never, I've never made more than $20,000 in my life at 26 and I've never really had like, never really had any sort of luxurious lifestyle. So I'm willing to still scrap and grind and and live without without much. And I think that's similar. Where like I've never seen that NFL paycheck or that real paycheck. So I don't feel pressure to sacrifice working on this every day to go get a paycheck. I don't even know what that feels like. Sidney was right. The worker man is a is a sucker, Dad. He's a sucker. He's wrong. It don't take much strength to pull a trigger. But try and get up every morning, day after day, and work for a living. Let's see him try that. Then we'll see who's the real tough guy. The working man is the tough guy. Your father's the tough guy. So for me, like, I've slept on a couch for three out of my five working years. You know what I mean? Like, I'm willing to do that again to make this podcast turn into a big media company and, and kind of live that dream out because I, I've never, it's not, there's no other side for me where I'm like, oh, shoot, I could be making 80. I don't know what it's like to make 80,000. Yeah, and again, it's all circumstance. Yeah, you know, you're, you're able to do that, and that's the vision, and you know, if you had a wife and kids right now, I guarantee it'd be a little bit different, but you don't. So, you know, provide you this opportunity. If you're a football coach and you meet a girl after the fact and you've already been coaching, you've got to get her to understand what exactly it is that you do. If, if you're with a girl and you've always been a coach, it's a lot different. But when you have this job and you go out and you do meet a girl and now all of a sudden you, you can't go and have dinner on Friday night because you're at the hotel or, right. you know, on Monday night you can't go have dinner because you're game planning. They, they don't get that. And, and it's hard and it's not for, for everyone. And there's Dude, you probably, know, you know, what we used to have to do. I, I didn't have a home in New Brunswick. I'm living in the facility. So it's not like I'd be like, Hey, come down and hang out at my house. Like she couldn't hang out in the facility. She wasn't allowed. So every Thursday night would be the only night for me where like I was really free because Friday you might be traveling or it's the day before the game. We, we'd be in the team hotel at home. She'd come over there. But Thursday night, Every Thursday, I used to go on Priceline and find the cheapest hotel within 10 miles of New Brunswick. And she would come down and be waiting for me in the hotel after I was done with my work. And we would spend for probably 12 straight weeks, we're in a random hotel room on Thursdays, like somewhere in, and that was how we spent our time together. And eventually, she's looking at me like, when is this going to end? Like, you're doing this another <laughs> year? Like, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not here for this. I don't blame her at all. Yeah. You know, and I think, but I think it told me, like, I'll never forget the first convention I was ever at. I saw Coach Cutcliffe speak, and he said, he had a list of 25 things you need to be a successful coach. And the number two thing he said was, if you can live without football, then coaching's not for you. Like, if you can envision any life without football, then coaching's going gonna, gonna to end up being a point where it's too grueling and the other side looks too good that, that you're not going to be able to grind it out. And I think that was it for me. Like, I definitely, I love football, but I can definitely live without football. There's a lot of other creative things I want to do with my life. And I think that kind of kind of awoke, woke me up to that is that, Hey, I don't know if football is everything. I'm willing to sacrifice everything to, to coach this game. It's exactly true. Yeah. It's a sacrifice and the guys that can do it are the ones that, that make it and they mm-hmm. outlast some of the other guys. Again, they might not be the best coaches, but they, they have the passion for it and they're able to, to outlast the others. It's similar to being a player, man. You don't have to be the most skilled player, the fastest player, the you know strongest player. If you're just tougher than everyone else, you got a chance. 
Yeah. Yeah. A lot of similarities. Part of it's, you know, like any other profession, if if you've been in it for 20, 25 years and you do get fired, it does become harder to get a job Mm -hmm. because you're an older guy now. There are younger coaches out there that are are innovative and and have done a great job in recruiting. And, you know, I was listening to to someone speak at the convention back in like 2013. They said you need two guys on an offense or on a staff that can that can coach ball offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator and you need seven guys that recruit that's how you win games with players and you need guys that can be out there to recruit so you know to your point of being that fly on the wall how how do you separate yourself you you bring different ideas to the recruiting element of the game you know you have to know enough football to to be able to coach your players and teach your stuff but at the end of the day what happens during this time of the year now as teams are getting ready for bowl games all the position coaches are out Mm -hmm. you know they come back the coordinator put the plan together coordinators coordinators are going to tell the the coaches what the plan is right. they'll get it to their players and they'll start practicing i agree with that and i think the recruiting thing being able to being able to stand out i think is important you know one thing i did that i presented and i, I interviewed at maryland i interviewed at tennessee i interviewed at Rutgers in my time uh at that level and and one thing i had when i was just graduating college and didn't really have a lot of coaching experience was i took the time to make up this like 15 page really like report on how to better use social media and recruiting and how to take advantage of cultural trends, how to add in sneaker sneaker culture to recruiting, which you've seen programs like Michigan do. They're sponsored by Jordan. Now they get custom Jordans. And I had this whole, this whole really theory of how to better use social media and recruiting. And that was something where whether or not these coaches agreed with my ideas, it showed that I was thinking out of the box, that I was taking time to think of other ways to help rather than just, hey, let me just show up. And that spoke a lot to just showing what kind of kid I was as far as my work ethic and, and thinking ability. I think something like that helps just doing doing more finding ways to stand out like you said. Yeah, and again when when you have a staff full of guys, what's the value added that you bring? And mm-hmm. for some guys they're they're great game plan guys, some guys are great great coaches on game day as far as calling plays, some guys are great recruiters, you yeah. know, and the best recruiters are always going to have a job. The best guys that can put a game plan together will always have a job, but each guy has their own niche and you can't have five great game planners on one staff, you know, and and you only have one good recruiter. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. So you have to find your area where you can excel and where you really can bring value to whatever team it is, whatever organization it is, whatever club it is. And and you go from there. You think I'm crazy, right? I don't know what to think. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Everybody, this is your host Drew Lieberman. I'm slow packing. <laughs> Our days here are numbered. Even the way we've come up in the world, think about it. Yeah. We've created the website ourselves. We've made this podcast ourselves. Like everything's been done just by us hustling. And you are now listening to the Sideline Hustle Podcast. We talk about doing the show. Yeah, yeah we, we laugh and we joke and we complain about how hard we work. But if we didn't love to coach, we wouldn't be doing it. I want the good guys in. Get them out of here. I want the good. <laughs> to me, I think we're broadcasting the day-to-day life of what college football is. From the sidelines, we gotta hustle because we gotta eat. From the sidelines, we got some goals that we still gotta reach. You know, once you get hired, it's it's kind of a crazy, crazy time. This is Ralph Friedgen, former head coach at the University of Maryland. 
You know, you got 5,000 calls coming into you, text messages, emails. You know, it's no way that you can virtually call everybody back. I mean, it's you'd like to do that. I think what I really did, I think I told my secretary to have a standard reply, you know, and I try to keep the one people that I was, I already kind of knew who I was interested in. And then I kind of went through the, the, the list and thought if somebody new came on there that I was interested in, I'd I told that, but I knew you. I wasn't interested. I tried to tell those people and let her handle all of that because the first thing that hits you is you got to hire a staff. As a head coach, it's completely different because you're now responsible for the entire program. What's up, guys? This is Mike Teal, head football coach at Don Bosco Prep High School, former Rutgers and Seattle Seahawks quarterback. As the offensive coordinator and really the cards I was dealt was that the staff was already in place. I was just going to teach a system of what I wanted to run. As a head coach, you now have to instill basically an entire staff uh put a put a culture and a program blueprint from a piece of paper and get it to a bunch of men that are going to in turn give it to the players so as the head coach it was to evaluate all the coaches that were currently on the staff and from there you know evaluating the pieces and and speaking with the coaches and I think the biggest thing is you got to be honest you know I, I met with every coach just sat down with them and and kind of explained where I was and what I was thinking and what I was going to do and uh, if I didn't know what I was going to do, I said I need a couple couple days, a week or two to kind of think some things out. And, you know, as a head coach, if you're going to let someone go, uh, you want to make sure that you do it soon enough where they have an opportunity to go find another job. Um, as a head coach, if someone's going to leave, you want them to tell you early enough where you can go find another coach. Yep. So it's, you know, there's a little bit of uh, of having some respect for each other and in, in as you kind of build a staff or as you transition from one staff to the other. Uh, but it was the priority of finding the right coaches, putting the pieces together, and, and then really getting the kids to understand why we're doing it, what we're going to do, and how we're going to be better going forward. Second thing you, you got to do is you, you got to, go recruiting. you got to make decisions. Are you keeping people that are already committed? Uh, are you going to look at the tape on them? Probably one of the things that I didn't do right my first time is I, I kept every commitment. That wasn't really a smart thing because... Why do you say that? Well, there were some kids there that couldn't play and some of them had some real issues that, you know, caused me problems my first year. And, um, you know, I, I really should have taken some time and reevaluated all of that. You know, a guy like Dominique Foxworth, who had committed to Maryland, decommitted when I got the job and I had to go back in and fight to get him back. And of course, he ended up playing as a true freshman and helped us win the ACC championship. And, and, you know, when, when he was a senior, you know, he played four straight years for me, actually three. And then he he came out as a junior, but he could have been playing for me, <laughs> and he was starting for the Denver Broncos. So his family was unbelievable, and uh, mom and dad are really, they're motivational speakers. They're really, really class people, and so is Dominique. He's really a class kid. So, you know, Gary Blackney and myself, I know, went, went into the home, and they allowed us in after he had decommitted, and we kind of turned him around, and he ended up coming back to Maryland and was very successful for us. But uh, Yeah, that's a great story. Yeah. yeah. So he was when we got back. But you know, I think if you take the job over again, I think it's only fair to kids, too, that you go back and evaluate for yourself. And But there's so much to do. 
what were like the biggest factors trying to find the right coaches? Like, what, what were you looking for in a guy that, that you wanted to hire? The hardest thing with, with high school football is, especially at the level that we play at, it's as close to a college job as possible. You have to have people that scheduling-wise, they can make it work because you start meetings at 2.30, you practice till 6 o'clock at night, and then you're there till 11 o'clock at night. Uh, and not everyone wants to do that. You only have two or three jobs that are in the school, so you got to be selective as far as who you're, who you're going to get to be able to be in the school, whether it's as a teacher, whether it's as a counselor, or whatever the role might be, you've got to be selective about that. So, so now, as far as as far as forming a staff, did you have guys that were kind of in your back pocket that you knew were coming with you if you got an opportunity, and and they were kind of there with you right away, or was that a process of piecing that staff together? Well, um, you know, I, I I had a list as I was aspiring to be a head coach. Whenever I saw a good coach. Um, I, I would write his name down and I'd also kind of estimate how much I would have to pay him to get him. So I had an A list, a B list and a C list, not on how they were as coaches, but how affordable they were, you know. So I would a- I asked in my interview and that's one thing they ask in every interview. So if you're aspiring to be a head coach, the first thing you better have on your list and for interviews is, you know, other than philosophy is who you planned on hiring, who would you like to hire? You know, I had coordinators, and then I had by position, and and I, I was pretty fortunate that I got to hire most of the guys, not all of them, most of the guys that I wanted to hire. And like Al Siemenson, he had worked for both Gary Blackney and Charlie Taft. You know, he worked with Charlie Taft at, at the Citadel, and then he worked with um, with Gary at Bowling Green. So they recommended Al, and then Al stayed with me for ten years, and and he was really a good coach and. And he was a good recruiter, so that that came on their recommendation. But most of the other guys were on my list, and uh, I just kind of went right down the list. Frank Wright, who's now the offensive coordinator of the Eagles, he you know he played for us when I was at uh, at Maryland in the eighties. But I you know I, I kind of knew who I wanted to go with because I knew the people. I wanted to have a a mentality of, of toughness, but also mentality of being able to to make adjustments over the course of a game. You know, you see so many times in high school football, they play this defense, they play it hard, they play it fast, they know what they're doing, and there's some validity to that. But I think at the same time, if, if you're playing against a, a four-wide team every down and you're in base and they're just throwing, you know, bubble screens on you, you got to be able to adjust. You got to be able to get different personnel on the field. You got to be able to change what you want to do from a from a scheme perspective. So sat down with a couple of guys and put them on a board. And Tell your father where you got the money. Dad, I worked for it. Doing what? You know, kind of asked some certain questions and, and did some certain things. Things? Things? What do you mean, things? What things? All things, no things. Hey. You know, then you kind of get into, well, I had a guy, and, you know, late he decides that he's not going to come, so now you're kind of left scrambling. Uh, so it's 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 stressful. It's, yeah. it's real stressful because, again, the most important thing you can do as a head coach is make sure you have the right guys in place because if you don't, the room can go sour. And the, the previous year, our room wasn't a great room as a, as a staff. The offensive coaches didn't talk to the defensive coaches. They tried to sabotage each other sometimes. And it's just not what you want. And, you know, my my number one goal was to make sure that that wasn't going to happen again, that we we're going to have a great uh, group of guys. Not that you're always going to agree, but that you're going to be mad enough to stand up in a room and, and argue it out and then shake hands. And at the end of the day, you've moved on and now we're going to attack the next thing. Yeah. And it's important to have that balance. 
And how fast was the turnaround for you once you got hired and, and to the point where you had filled your staff? I think I filled my staff probably within 10 days. Oh, wow. 10 days to two weeks. But, uh, you know, you, you know, by that, you know, I was also recruiting then too. So I can remember being in cars recruiting and talking to potential coaches too. You know, the AD wanted me to keep uh, Mike Loxley and James Franklin. You know, I didn't know if I was going to keep them or not. So it, they were kind of on a trial basis. And uh, so I would go recruiting with them and they knew that I was looking for other people for their jobs. And after being on the road recruiting with them, I was very impressed. They were really good recruiters. They were really sharp and really did a good job in the homes. And uh, I decided to keep them and I, they did a, you know, they did a good job for me. So, so I think it was like, two days before we actually started the spring semester. Bill O'Brien was hired and now. What's up guys, this is Sean Stanley, defensive line coach at Wesleyan, former Penn State defensive lineman. He's on campus, he has a meeting with the players that are there so far. And you could kind of tell from then like he was a no bullshit type of guy. He wasn't gonna take anything. He had that NFL pedigree, so I think people respected him, like knowing that he came from a successful NFL team in the Patriots. And everybody was kind of excited. It wasn't really like, what's this new coach going to be? It was more, we're moving on. We have someone else in here. I'm like, let's hope for the best. You can't even understand it until you're the guy that's make, like. Hey guys, Steve Hauser here, special teams coordinator, Oklahoma State, Wesleyan grad. Obviously, none of us understand what that is, but like you sit in staff meetings and you think about all the little things of, you know, even program building of what's important as a value of a culture of, you know, how you want to structure your place and market it to parents and kids. Like you have to have a concrete strategy and you can't just go day to day. You've got to have some large scale CEO oversight and you've got to be smart enough to have vision. You kind of saw that there was a different, like he wasn't going to tailor to what Paterno did in the past. Like mm -hmm. we were just moving on to a new and different era of Penn State, and he didn't really care what anybody had to say about it. And I think that's kind of what built that 2012 team. Like we weren't going to care what the outside said. We were just going to do what we had to do, take care of business, and kind of let our football talk for itself. So again, he he definitely instilled that we were going to be a hardworking team. We were still going to do all the things that made us successful in the past, but we weren't going to harp on everything that was negative. He was gonna take care of the media for us. We didn't have to worry about that anymore. And I think that kind of just allowed us to go back to our regular routine. I think it really helped him that what he brought was something that everybody could buy into because of where he came from, the success that he had. Yeah. As a head coach, you always have you know your core values, your philosophies, what you believe in. You know, as you go through it, there's there's so much stuff that's kind of going on as you're trying to transition. The number one thing for me was to make sure that our strength program was in place because that that's the guy in the off season that spends more time with the kids than anyone is a strength coach. So to make sure we, we had a <clears throat> we had a strength coach who had an understanding of what I wanted, had a belief in, in what the program was as a whole and was gonna do the right thing every single day. So that, that was the number one priority. I'm looking at this website right now. It was from 2007. It's called coacheshotseat.com. And it was after 04, you went five and six. 05, you went five and six. 2006, you went nine and four. 2007, you went six and seven. And then they put you on this this site saying that you were, you know, quote unquote, on the hot seat. Did you ever like have a sense of that or know that 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 kind of talk ever affect you as, as a head coach? Nah, it, you know, people told me that at that point in time, they, they were going to fire me in 2006, you said? Uh, after the 2007 season. Well, they would have owed me like um, $5 million, $6 million. That's what it says. It says $4.5 million. Yeah. Maryland's not going to fire me and pay me $4.5 million. I can tell you that. 
Yeah, so, but I don't let any of them. You know, they, they can do whatever they wanted because I, I think as a coach, you know, you can't worry about that. You got to go out and coach and whatever it's going to be is going to be. I mean, Anderson came out after we beat Virginia and I think we won seven games and and I was on, I had another year on my contract left. He said, you know, Coach Reed's job is safe. I think once they say that, you're in, you got to start worrying. Because <laughs> when they say that, you usually get fired. Yeah, that's that's so true. Yeah, you know, and so I, I, I didn't even worry about it at the time. I just, hey, whatever it is, you know, if, you, if someone can come in here and do better than me, they're they're welcome to it. You know, some people, and I, I include the ADs in that, that uh, they don't understand how tough a job that is. And I knew it. And uh, I, I said at my final press conference, I said, everybody thinks this job is like any other job. I said, I knew what I was getting into and I knew the problems. And uh, I said, they'll take this job thinking it's like everybody else. And then after the third year, they realize it isn't. And then it's too late. That's kind of what's happened. I really don't believe that, you know. Mizzou fires their linebackers coach week two. He coaches the linebackers the entire season with a linebacker salary. They give him the salary right. for the whole season. Good so you can him. imagine how puppies, right? Three days after the season ends, right? All of a sudden, the linebacker coach just gets hired, waltzes in the room. <laughs> 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 got no, got no chance. Got no chance. Didn't get an interview. Oh my oh, god! At least he got the salary, man. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. Someone that's pretty pretty get by right. that. Yeah. That's true. He made the yeah, salary coach one year. They kept all the GAs on. They kept all the GAs on, but hired our replacements just waiting for us to leave. They waited to get the picture to like. And they were like, listen, we're not going to throw you on the street, but all the guys no, are better on the street, they're going to replace you. Right? <laughs> I remember at Rutgers, we had, I think there was like two or three weeks in between Flood and, and Ash, and we had to hold two recruiting visits without a head coach. And we had one visit where like we ended up getting, because there was no leadership, we ended up getting in like a, the coaches got in a screaming match with each other in front of all the recruits one weekend. And needless to say, none of them committed. Like it was just, just a crazy time because we were trying to like, we almost questioned like, why are we doing this? Because it's like, no, we're all sitting there like, none of us are going to get retained. Like, why are we even like putting this class together? Why are we going through all this effort? Like, we're doing it for nobody. It's just just an awkward time, kind of like, you don't know what else to do. You don't know any other way but to recruit because it's kind of beaten into you. It's second nature that we need to hold these visits, we need to do this. But, you know, on a personal level for everyone there, it was pretty much for nothing because Ash didn't keep anybody. You know, I think for the program, we, we kept some things together, but it was definitely weird. Was there anything like that with you guys in, in between that time? When O'Brien left, I mean, all those guys were NFL guys or, or knew they had no chance of being retained on staff or had no interest in being retained on staff. So as soon as he left, it was more they were cleaning out their offices, going on, hoping that they were going to the Texans or looking for the next opportunity to fit them. So, I mean, it was kind of a ghost town, but there were still enough people to get what needed to be done right. and still try to secure a recruiting class, exactly. even though they had done a pretty good job before that. It's just a crazy time, I think, those coaching transitions, like being a guy who's hoping to be a holdover, like if you're a young coach, like for me, as soon as we got fired, as soon as the whole staff got fired, I was I was kind of thinking I wanted to get, get out of coaching at the Division One level anyway and transition myself, whether, you know, flood, the staff was intact or not. But other guys, other GAs, like they were trying to continue a Division One coaching career and, and they were the guys who were, you know, they said jump, they were asking how high and they were doing all the little things and, and doing as much as they could to impress those guys. Um, but it's definitely like an interesting time when like you're trying to please people, trying to, to work hard for guys, but you don't, you're not really working hard for anyone because they don't give you many tasks. They don't give you anything to really do. 
Um, but then, you know, you're trying to make busy work and make work for yourself just so you can look good and, and look like you're working hard. It's what I found the best nah. was the fact that you recycled all of your Rutgers gear. gear. When I came back to Wesleyan, I brought some of my old Rutgers gear with me, knowing that I was going to a D3 school with a much smaller budget. And I found a company in Vermont to rip all the Block R patches off of my old Rutgers gear and swap it out for a Wesleyan W. Are you guys Nike? <laughs> Yeah, Nike, Nike and Red and Black. So you just <laughs> got rid of the patch the, on everything. I have like 20 Rutgers patches that just sit in my The thing. one you wear for games is the best. The best. The two, I, have the, I have the black cutoff mm -hmm. and the white cutoff. One and you're the white, only one on staff that has that has it. I have better gear than all of the head coach. <laughs> like he has everything everyone else has, and everyone's like, where'd you get this? I'm like, don't worry about it. I have like 20 things that no one else has ever had. <laughs> I gave all my satellite hustle, bro. Yeah. I said satellite hustle. Return for a touchdown. We're good Lou here. collected everybody's <laughs> stuff that left and sold it on eBay. Yeah. Seriously? Hell yeah. Paraphernalia, all that. The yeah. axes, everything. Yo, you guys either. throwing out axes for I got the axe. He has the axe. I have the axe. No, I kept a lot of it. <laughs> Bro, I slept in an office and when the new coach came, <laughs> he walked in at 4.45 in the morning and was like, hey, what's up? I was like, yeah. I, got up, I was under my blanket in my boxers. I got up to shake his hand. I was like, oh, shit. I'm like, bro, I'm not gonna meet this guy like this. They're like, oh, we're gonna let you sleep. The players, They're gonna, you, you can't sleep in the building. And if you do, if we find you, then you're probably gonna be fired. I was like, okay, I'll sleep in the locker room. And the Penn State women's soccer team walked in on me one time. Whatever. I was like, what's up, ladies? So Flood gets fired. Ash gets hired, right? And like. The GAs, the PDs, and Freddie haven't been spoken to. Like nobody who got who's full time has spoken to us like a word. Like we don't know who we're working for. We don't know whether we're still here. GAs don't either. So finally, like all the full time coaches are on the road. It's just us in the building. And it's like, oh, today's the day we're all gonna meet and like to find out our fate. So he calls in someone, whatever comes out. And now we're all in this office and like Freddie's up next. He calls Freddie in. Now the four GAs and the last ones left. We're all waiting. So like Freddie goes in there. And we're all sitting there like, dude, we're all getting fired. Rocco's like, dude, I don't know what I'm gonna tell my wife. Like, I don't have a job. Like, we're all freaking out. And I had a kid like a couple months before. Yeah, a couple months before. <laughs> and so Freddie goes in and Right. And then so so Freddie goes in and we're like, dude, poor Freddie, man. Like he's worked here forever. So Freddie goes into the meeting. Freddie's in the meeting probably what, like 30 minutes? Like Freddie was in there Freddy forever. In there First of all, Freddie Freddie walks into the meeting to go get fired with a binder this big. <laughs> you you always carry the binder. <laughs> He's like walking like, what can you be telling this guy? He's about to get fired. In there for like a half hour. Comes up with his binder, smiling. We're like, wow, Freddie's like happy. Like what like what's Freddie, how'd it go? He's like, ah, oh, it was good. He's a really good guy. And I'm not coming back though. <laughs> <laughs> And then we all walked in and he kept us all somehow. What was the what was the process of, of getting getting fired? How did that how did that all go down for you and, and everything? Well that's that's a interesting story. I don't know if I want it on the air, but basically um, you know, I was recruiting, came back from recruiting and, and the A D called me and said he wanted to talk to me after the president was speaking to all the coaches. So he, he took me into his office and he said, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna renew your your contract. So I said, he said, in fact, we, we we're gonna we're gonna take out the we're gonna pay you for the last year. I said, that's fine. You know, he said, you okay with that? I said, that's fine. And then I read all these stuff in the papers now. My wife telling me the other day, I said, I don't really care. You know, they're saying like, you know, I demanded this. I demanded, I didn't demand anything. I just didn't think they treated me right. So, and I I was well I was willing to step down if that's what you want. Fine, you know, I'll just retire and move on. You know, but. No, you know, I, I guess I wouldn't go quietly. 
they, you know, they're catching, they've been catching grief since I left. So they wanted me to uh, just resign and retire, you know, and I, and I got, I got pissed. I said, I don't deserve to be treated like this. You know, I said, I'm an alumnus of the school. I said, I gave my heart and soul to this place for 10 years. And this is what, this is how you handle this. I said, uh, no, you're going to have to fire me. I said, you want, you want to, me to retire, you're going to pay me some more money. Otherwise, so then I had all these people calling me, this is, you know, you're going to destroy your legacy. And I said, my legacy is my legacy. That's all we've got for episode 18 of the Sideline Hustle podcast. We will likely be off next Monday. Uh, I'm moving out of my apartment and have two final papers to write for grad school that were due last month, so I got to get some stuff together. Uh, the next episode will be on recruiting as we approach signing day, and then we have a couple of surprise episodes for you before we call it a wrap for season one of the podcast. Uh, there's a ton of great content I didn't include in this episode today, so definitely stay tuned for some Sideline Stories episodes coming up on the podcast, as well as Forward Progress, our behind-the-scenes look into the process of building a business and growing the sideline hustle brand Uh, so if you're interested in that definitely stay tuned for forward progress teach tapes is going to be huge again this week on social media hoping to come out with two to three videos very soon so follow us on instagram twitter facebook and our new youtube channel at sideline hustle stay hungry keep grinding see you next week to protect the sheep you got to catch the wolf and it takes a wolf to catch a wolf you understand Days and I'm trapped days See I'm talking way back